you know, we heard the statistic one in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer. The overall statistic is one in three people will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. One in three. And there are some people where we are not going to prevent the development of that cancer and we need to think about more creative ways to treat their cancer. But we know that lifestyle interventions do help prevent cancer. There's about a 20% risk reduction in the development of cancers sort of across the board with exercise. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. And in this week's episode, I'm sharing another panel that I hosted on behalf of CrossFit Health at this year's CrossFit Games. This particular panel was on the topic of cancer, and we had an incredible group of panelists sharing a variety of perspectives. This was the most personally touching panel for me, and I think it was for many of our audience members there as well. Our panelists included Fran Whitfield, who's a trainer sharing her personal experience with stage four breast cancer, as well as Dr. Allison Warner, who's an exercise oncologist who cares for patients and does research on the benefits of cancer for cancer treatment and prevention. Ziana Hansen, Barbells for Boobs founder, who shared her personal connection to cancer and some of the amazing work she's been doing within the CrossFit community through Barbells for Boobs over the past several years. And finally, Scott Britton, who is the founder of Battle Cancer, who is also doing some incredible work fundraising and connecting individuals around cancer in the CrossFit community. This panel was originally published on CrossFit.com on October 27th, but I'm excited to share it with you all here as well. Before we dive in, I do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. I recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. And with that, let's get to the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our panelists and host, Dr. Julie Fouché. All right, thank you. Well, I am very excited about this panel. We are gonna be talking about CrossFit and cancer, which is a heavy topic, but one that I think affects all of us in some way. And I'm very excited about the people we have sitting up here with me today. So I'm gonna introduce them first, and then we'll dive in. So first to my left, I have Fran Whitfield, who's a coach and a stage four breast cancer and brain tumor survivor, who is currently undergoing treatment. Yeah, let's Currently undergoing treatment, um, she was initially misdiagnosed by a physician who thought her symptoms were caused by being young and hormonal. She's how old? 24. 24 when she was first, um, first started having symptoms. Fran is passionate about spreading awareness to young people and showing them the power exercise has when it comes to battling cancer. Next, I have Dr. Allison Bedoff, who is an MD-PhD certified medical oncologist practicing at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. She completed her doctorate at Duke University in exercise oncology, her residency in internal medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital, and her fellowship in oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Then we have, as you all know and love, um, (laughs) Z Hansen, who is the founder of Barbells for Food. I love it. A nonprofit that uses 
Oh, sorry. I'm reading the wrong one. Um, a nonprofit that started with a focus on funding mammograms and has evolved into an organization that uses fitness to provide community and resources to breast cancer patients and survivors. Z's passion for the fight against breast cancer started in 2009 when her best friend was diagnosed at the age of 26. She rallied the CrossFit community to support her friend. And from that small event, Barbells for Boobs was born. And under her guidance, it has grown into a global movement. And finally, I have Scott Britton, who is the founder of Battle Cancer, a nonprofit that uses functional fitness events to raise funds for cancer charities, as well as provides free training programs to help cancer survivors thrive post-treatment. What started as a small personal fundraising initiative has grown into a huge movement that's raised over $1.4 million and hosts events across Europe and the U.S. And most recently, Battle Cancer formed an official partnership with CrossFit and sits poised to become an even bigger global phenomenon as it leverages the CrossFit community to create powerful bonds and relationships that support cancer survivors. So, oh my goodness, this is going to be fun. (laughs) All right, so let's just start with... um, sort of each of your personal connection to cancer, you know, like, like I mentioned, probably all of us now today have been touched by cancer in some way, whether it's personally or a family member, friend, or an acquaintance. Um, but each of you obviously has been touched by cancer and have decided to make it a big part of your passion, your life, um, advocating and supporting those with cancer. So whatever order you want to start in, um, I'd love to hear your stories. Should I go first? Go for it. Yeah, yeah. Go for it. Fran. <laughs> I need to touch my hype one. Is it on? Yeah. Yeah, just make sure the microphone's yeah. on. Yep. Um, okay, I'll try and kind of concise mine and keep mine quick. Uh, so, yeah, 2019, I was 24 years old. Um, I found a lump in my right breast. Um, I went to the doctor, I was referred for a scan, but then when I went, they kind of looked at me. They said, you know, you're fit, you're healthy. Um, I was training for Ironman at the time and I was young. So they said, it's going to be a hormonal lump. You're absolutely fine. Sent me on my way. Uh, 18 months later, which took me to last year in July, um, I developed a dimple where that lump was. So went back to the doctor, insisted that I had an emergency um, diagnostic test. Three days later, I was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer. But in the two weeks preceding that, um, they then found out that I had two other tumors, one in my skull and then um, one in my liver as well. So I was went straight under theater, um, straight into theater, um, had my part of my skull removed, had the tumor removed. Um, and then I then started quite an aggressive uh, regime of chemotherapy for six months, which I just finished in March this year had radiotherapy straight after to my skull, um, and now I'm still on treatment. I'm now on a new uh, targeted therapy drug um, to try and combat um, my stage four. Um, But all the way through my treatment, I trained the whole time. Um, I had an assault bike in my apartment that I would ride every day. Uh, My oncologist did think that I was completely mental, but he did give me the okay to do it. Um, So I continued, I trained all the way through. I didn't fatigue in chemo, um, and I'm still combating by training regularly. Um, I still train like five days a week. Uh, The side effects that are expected on the targeted therapy drug that I'm on. Um, So yeah, my, obviously I've got a very like personal um, touch with cancer, but I'm here to kind of showcase the fact of how important it is that we do continue to train. Um, You can combat the side effects from treatment, post-treatment, they stay with you even when you have finished. Um, And yeah. Like, and also just the fact that we don't need to get wrapped up in cotton wool. As a cancer patient, as a cancer survivor, we do not need to get wrapped up in cotton wool. We can still squat, we can still clean, we can still jerk, we can still go mad on the assault bike. Um, we know our body and we can still do it. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, so I guess I'll go next. 
So um, unfortunately, growing up, I lost uh, three of my four grandparents to cancer. And I had always known I wanted to be a doctor. But when I started medical school, I actually thought I was not going to go into oncology because it was too personal to me. Um, I thought I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. I had been a college division one gymnast. And um, on my orthopedic surgery rotation, I met a 15-year-old um, who was a gymnast who was diagnosed with osteosarcoma in her leg. Um, and I was the one actually who told her about her diagnosis and watched her for the next several years go through surgery, chemo, and then what survivorship looks like for a 15-year-old. And that to me was profoundly life-changing. So I was an MD-PhD student. I like immediately changed course from what I was researching um, and joined a lab studying the effects of exercise on cancer and mouse models. And we developed a model to basically demonstrate for the first time conclusively that exercise slows tumor growth. Um, and since that time, I've been working on the mechanisms of how we do that, um, you know, what kind, what type, um, duration, intensity, things like that. Um, and I grew up, graduated, went to residency, um, and I'm a practicing oncologist now. Um, and unfortunately, just lost a few weeks ago another family member to cancer um, who I had been talking through her treatment for the last oh, five or six years. Um, and one of the hardest parts was convincing someone who had never exercised a day in her life that that was an important part of her treatment. So I've sort of seen this through every end of the spectrum um, and thrilled to be here to, to share some experience with you. Thank you. Yeah. Don't make me cry already. Jesus Christ. Uh, so I know that we're in good company. Raise your hand if you've been impacted by cancer. Keep your hand up if you are a cancer survivor, thriver. Yes. 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 <laughs> we have my people here. Um, so I didn't realize how, how many people were impacted by cancer until, you know, in breast cancer, one in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer. And I thought it was something that happens when you're 40. Um, I owned an affiliate when my best friend was diagnosed, so it shook me to the core because I was 29. I had no idea that women could get breast cancer under 40, so I was very uneducated. I was very naive, um, and the thing that really fired me up when my best friend was diagnosed was they denied her. They told her she was too young for breast cancer. They wrote on her medical documentation, mammography recommended at age 40, and she was 26. Um, she, she turns She's going to turn 40 next week. So imagine if she would have waited. She's now an 11-year breast cancer survivor. So um, she went in six months later, and she was diagnosed with breast cancer. I challenged myself to grace because I was like, that's scary. If she could do treatment, I could do grace. Um, and we did the first workout in dedication to her. Um, and I went to give her the money that we raised, and she told me to help others. And that's really the founding of Barbells for Boobs was the selfless act of my best friend, Ceci. Um, and you know, we went and trailblazed. I was like, there's never going to be a girl like Z ever again that, you know, doesn't know that breast cancer can happen at any time to anybody. Um, and so we went and trailblazed early detection, um, across the world. Thank goodness through the CrossFit community 
like that wasn't me. That was people that heard Ceci's story and put on events and believed in the work we were doing. Um, and then in 2016, my sister was diagnosed with stage four metastatic breast cancer. And I was like, ouch, like heaviness, right? That, that heaviness of a stage four. I'm thankful it wasn't my first diagnosis I was exposed to. I was very well equipped um, to be there for her. Um, and we unfortunately lost her in 2018. And that's when I knew that the barbell became a healing place for me. It was where I would go to find my peace and my silence and understand why the world keeps, like, why the universe is talking to me through cancer. And I said, if this is able to heal me, it has to heal people going through the same stuff um, because it's so uncontrollable. I couldn't control that loss and I couldn't control it. I had to focus on what I could control, which was my own health, my own mental health, my own physical health. Um, and that's what really inspired the resources after diagnosis, because once a woman goes through treatment and her hair grows back um, and she looks normal again, she's not and she never will be. Um, and what I learned through the trauma of losing my sister was a woman loses a piece of her in that, in that diagnosis. And all we want to do with the resources after diagnosis is build her back up. I'll never be able to give her that old person back but I can damn sure make sure that she feels like a badass after breast cancer. So um, that's, that's what I get to do every day. And I'm super grateful and thankful for all the support um, globally uh, with our work. So thank you. Well, I mean, being last is not easy after that. Um, so I'm going to admit something. I think I'm probably the biggest fraud out of this group. Um, you know, everybody presumes that I have this deeply personal connection with cancer, and I don't. I grew up knowing how to behave at a funeral more than I knew how to behave at a wedding. Uh, and that was because cancer and death and funerals were always interlinked. Nobody passed away from anything else in my life. And so every year I decided to try and do an individual challenge. And this is the fraud bit. I was awful. I would raise like $100 for a month-long challenge. Um, and the way my mind kind of works was I saw problems and how we get a solution to those problems was, okay, I'm really bad at doing this on my own, but if I have 15,000 people who are really bad at doing this and we're all together, that's a hell of an impact. So with zero experience of events, with zero marketing experience, zero charity experience, I went and booked the biggest uh, indoor venue I could find in England um, and paid for the deposit. And then tried to convince people to come and do four workouts in one day, but use those workouts as a challenge. But just to reward people for fundraising as opposed to reward them for their physical prowess. And to turn on people and say that the effort and the heart that they show is significantly more than anything that you might be able to do 30 unbroken muscle-ups. Like, that is cool in its own, but when you see a 72-year-old who's decided post-cancer treatment after 10 years to come and do an event with 3,000 people by the side of them, that's an athlete, like that's a hero. So very quickly, it got incredibly addictive to keep creating these events, you know? And we raised from 40,000 pounds, you know, $60,000. Very quickly, we put nine events on around the world and so far, we've had 27,000 people do our events. And it's just spiraled and spiraled. And what we've learned is, you know, I've, 
I've cried with people in Madrid who are oncology patients who did our event. You know, I've met groups of mothers in Ireland who have all got children in end-of-life care. And all around the world that we've been, there's a single theme that shared suffering can create some fantastic things. So everybody knows how hard burpees are. Everybody knows how hard the assault bike can be. But when you combine that with a room where every single person in that room knows how difficult loss, knows how difficult treatment can be, facing mortality, losing a child, losing a loved one, this beautiful connection happens. And that's what Battle Cancer became about. So the fundraising's brilliant. Yeah, we've raised however much, but it's not us. It's the people that have done our events. You know, they're the fundraisers. And pre-COVID, we were on this mission of let's go event, 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 event. Uh, and then when COVID hit, we were like, okay, we can't do events. What do we do? Um, and I've been so lucky and, you know, inspired massively by Z and the work that she's done. And it's like, uh, kind of like meeting your hero last night. I was like, oh my God, I better put a nice t-shirt on, get some nice pants on. Um, I tried. A little bit of Roland. I tried. Um, and what we changed was we said, okay, we're always going to fundraise. Let's continue to expand our events. And our partnership with CrossFit is allowing us to do that massively. But also bring what we call a battle cancer program. And it's inspired by the work that people are doing all around the world. And we now have an online and an in-person program that we said, you know what? Maybe you don't have to be a cancer specialist to help somebody who's recovered from cancer. Maybe they don't want to be told, sit up and stand and walk around a chair. You know, sometimes in some places that is needed, but we wanted to go for the countless hundreds of thousands that don't want that. And our program gets people physically and mentally back, exactly, I'm going to steal your words, to the badass people that they are. You know, we use the word battle because it talks about resilience, strength, community. It's all those things. And we now have about 200 people per month that we support from as far as Egypt, Canada, Brazil. We're breaching into the US that have increased their back squats by 20%. Now that doesn't matter, but that back squat increase has meant they can walk upstairs and carry their bags upstairs. They've increased their push press, which means they can now tie their own hair after having a single or double mastectomy. And that is the most rewarding, selfish thing that I've ever done in my life because it makes me feel great. So I have to say I'm more the fraud out of everyone here um, and just can sit with these guys and listen is huge. So it, it started off as a, I was really bad at fundraising. Uh, and now four years later, I'm sat next to these incredible people in front of you at the CrossFit Games. So I'll shut up now and get back on. All right. <laughs> That was amazing. I am so inspired just hearing, you know, the beginning of this panel. So I want to I want to talk a little bit about maybe specifically to Allison about what we know about the impact of exercise on cancer prevention and treatment, because obviously you've done a lot of research in that area. And I think it's one of the areas that just the general population doesn't know as much about. I think we think about exercise being helpful for things like heart disease or diabetes, but we don't always think about it um, when it comes to cancer. Um, so, you know, we heard the statistic one in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer. The overall statistic is one in three people will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. One in three. And there are some people where we are not going to prevent the development of that cancer and we need to think about more creative ways to treat their cancer. Um, but we know that lifestyle interventions do help prevent cancer. 
Um, there's about a 20% risk reduction in the development of cancers sort of across the board um, with exercise. There's some dose responsiveness, meaning if you exercise more, that's probably more protective, though the science there sort of is a little less solid because a lot of times these are self-reported, you know, people tell you in retrospect how much exercise they were doing before they were diagnosed. Um, but we know for sure, no question about it, that exercise absolutely risk, is a risk reducer for the development of cancer. Once cancer has actually developed, exercise as a treatment for cancer is a very, very new world. So it is a new field that is actually called exercise oncology. That term was coined by my mentor. Um, and now there's probably, I don't know, 100 or so of us in the country. Um, but what we have done is tried to go back and say, okay, the prevention piece is very important, but what, a, what is the effect of exercise actually on a cancer and the treatment of cancer? Um, and we know that this differs by cancer type, right? So there's about 100 different types of cancer. Treatment of breast cancer and colon cancer is not the same, but we know that exercise profoundly um, improves er, outcomes for breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer, stomach cancer, um, and endometrial cancer. Um, and then there are many others where that connection is a little bit less clear, but lots of people like myself studying rare cancers where we're, we're really trying to work on that. Um, but what we do know is that when I started in this field, um, it took five years to get my first academic paper published on this because no one believed it no one believed that exercise could slow tumor growth. And we showed it over and over and over again in different mouse models, and we had human data that said the same thing, and no academic journal would take it because nobody believed it. And we just kept sort of chipping away and showing it in different models, and we finally got this published in 2015, years after I finished my PhD. Um, and now this has been shown in over 20 different types of cancer. Um, one of the main ways that exercise affects cancer is the same way that it works in diabetes, the same way it works in heart disease. It improves cancer blood vessels. And that sounds like it should be a bad thing, and this is why people read our initial work and, you know, said no way. Um, because in diabetes or in heart disease, we're trying to improve the structure of a blood vessel, right? And in cancer, if you do that, in theory, right, you could, God forbid, be, you know, delivering more oxygen or nutrients to that tumor and make it grow. Turns out that you're doing exactly the opposite, right? That by giving that tumor all the nutrients and the oxygen that it wants, it basically becomes less aggressive. It doesn't feel like it needs to spread. It doesn't feel like it needs to grow as quickly because it's in an environment where it can survive. And so we know that these tumors are actually less aggressive. Also, by improving the blood vessels, we can get more drug to the tumor. So chemotherapy, which has now been shown, for exactly the same dose of chemotherapy, you can get more to the tumor if people exercise, or at least in mouse models, um, and working on that in humans. Um, in the new modern world of immune therapy, where we're trying to use the immune system to treat cancer, 
right? We know that exercise is an activator of the immune system. If we improve the blood vessels, we can also get immune cells to the tumor. And in radiation, one of the biggest things that makes radiation work and work in a lasting way is oxygen stabilizing the damage to the DNA that radiation does. And so for all of these reasons, we know that exercise is an effective treatment for cancer. And now it's about working out some of the details. That is amazing. And thank you for being persistent with that research and fighting um, sort of all the, the tradition in, in medical research and publishing. Fran, would you mind talking a little bit about your personal experience using exercise and what impact that had on your experience of treatment relative to, you know, what other patients might have experienced? Yeah, so um, it's actually really interesting listening to Alison talking about that because even though, yes, I am now technically stage four because they didn't catch it a year and a half ago when they were supposed to, like prior to my diagnosis, they actually, when they tested the gen like the genetics of my tumor, they found that it was significantly less aggressive than someone typically my age. Um, at the age of 25, because your cells are regenerating very quickly, they usually have very aggressive cancer. So in those 18 months, they actually would have expected to see a lot more development um, than they had done. And the tumor that was in my liver and in my skull was actually relatively small. Um, and they had did actually put that down to the fact that prior to that and all the way through from kind of like 24 to 25, when obviously the cancer was developing, um, I was training to a very intense level that whole time. Um, then post-diagnosis, um, when I went through um, my brain surgery, not this isn't blowing my own trumpet at all. Um, this is just showing kind of the effect of being like fit can do. But when I had my brain surgery, it was estimated that I was going to be in the hospital for a minimum of seven days. I was in the UK's largest ICU ward. Um, but I walked out under less than 48 hours later. Um, and it was a lot of mental strength that I needed. Like I wanted to get home. I needed to see my family. It was COVID time. I wasn't allowed visitors when I went in there. So a lot of like mental strength went into that. But from a physical point of view, they said again that the reason why I was able to get out of bed under 24 hours of having my skull removed was because of the fact that I was actually fit and strong enough to be able to do that. Um, and I had my hands up like prior to that, apart from doing the Ironman, like my training was very targeted towards aesthetics, whereas now I'm very much promoting the fact that actually, no, that isn't what you should be training for. You know, you're training to prepare your body for these things that can happen to us. Um, and then all the way through my chemotherapy routine, like I never fatigued. I was, I connected with a lot of girls similar to my age that were going through treatment at the same time as me. And um, they were really struggling with fatigue, which is one of the most debilitating side effects that you can get from cancer treatment. But I personally never got that. Um, some days, yes, I was more tired than others. And on those days I wouldn't go on the assault bike, but I would still take a walk. I would still do some kind of resistance training with the resistance bands that I had at home or something just to try and keep muscular strength as well that can be affected when you are going under a very aggressive chemotherapy routine. Um, and my chemotherapy worked incredibly well. So it completely eradicated my liver tumor. Um, what was left in my um, skull, because they couldn't completely get rid of it because of the fact that it was attached to muscles and nerves. And if they did, then I would have had like, permanent uh, nerve damage to my face. Um, but what was left, again, was completely eradicated. I've had the, the clear on my scan from that from chemotherapy. And um, I kept all of my hair. They weren't sure how on earth they would do it. Like, you know, I managed to keep my hair during chemotherapy. I did cold cap, but it worked incredibly well. And my oncologist has said that my body was metabolizing the drug incredibly well as I was going through chemotherapy. And my tumor 
pretty much shrank. Like it's, um, it went from the size of a lime to the size of a pea. Um, and when I went through radiotherapy as well, inevitably I did get fatigue from radiotherapy. You kind of can't have zaps going into your brain without feeling a little bit tired after. But I bounced back pretty quickly. I was back working. I was back, you know, coaching other people. Um, I'm here today. Like I've traveled around with Scott um, with battle cancer for the last month. Um, and I haven't really had any kind of like dips every now and then I get a little bit more tired um, but like the targeted therapy drug that I'm on there's a lot of side effects that come with that very similar to chemotherapy um, touch wood I haven't experienced any of those um, so I think from that kind of perspective um, my kind of the way that I've gone through treatment has been very different to women that I know that are kind of unfortunately they are just sort of sitting at home and they're getting told to rest um, and in my opinion and I think, you know, everyone here would agree that actually rest is not best. That was very much the old mindset that rest is best. It's not. If you sit at home and if you rest through your treatment, the fatigue will hit you and you will spiral. If you sit down on the sofa, you will get more tired. The more tired you get, the more you want to sit down and you will just keep going. But if you break that cycle and you get up and even if you go for a 10 minute walk and then every night you increase that to a 20 minute walk and then a 30 minute walk over time, um, then you can then get hold of that fatigue and then you won't actually be affected as much as someone that wasn't as active. So one thing to add to that, because I think you described it so perfectly, I talked a little about the science of why exercise may affect a tumor, but what we know and where the science is the best and the data are the best is in quality of life for patients on treatment and post-treatment. And we know unequivocally that exercise improves quality of life, anxiety, fatigue, um, uh, self-esteem, um, and a lot of the other sort of quality of life metrics that we assess. The other thing, and Fran raised this beautifully to me to kind of upskill my mind, was we get told, certainly in the UK, if you have had uh, breast surgery, you are not meant to do this. Now, and Fran, maybe you can jump in on this as well, was what are you asked to do when you go for a scan? You have to do this. And also, when you go undergo radiotherapy, which is usually what follows having breast surgery, the only way that you can actually be in the radiotherapy machine is by putting your hands above your head. So if you're not allowed to have that range of movement, if you're getting told, oh, you shouldn't be put pressing, you shouldn't be putting your hand above your head, your, delay, your treatment is going to get delayed. If you can't actually undergo in that machine and put your hands up, they will then delay your radiotherapy until you are able to do that. So it's completely counteracting what they're actually saying in the sense of, oh yeah, you're not allowed to press, but we're now going to have to delay your treatment because you now can't do this. So I understand that there's a hesitancy from people who are fitness professionals. And however, if somebody is an incredibly delicate part of their treatment, Yes, they will be working intensively with somebody in a hospital in an MD setting. However, in our program, we've got people who have left three months ago, people of 10 years ago that have had treatment and been terrified to A, walk into a gym, or B, they've been turned down and turned away by every coach because they say, I don't want to make you worse. Okay, guys, you're not going to make anyone worse. But the great thing and the beautiful thing about this panel is everybody here is taking the top level. And you're pulling the scientific data to prove that you will make them better, let alone worse. 
You have been fighting for 12, 13 plus years to show the community impact and physical impact of when you bring people into a group community setting. And for me, as a coach, as a PT, somebody that would set my business up in fitness, to be able to welcome every kind of person to experience what I can deliver is great. And this is the beautiful thing about CrossFit. CrossFit has not set that bar. CrossFit has said, we will welcome every single person through that door and we'll work with you. And I think that's what needs to change and it needs to affect a high level here in the US. It needs to be the medical health, the insurers. It needs to be the large gym chains as well that see this. And it needs to be doctors that say, okay, instead of a Ritalin, instead of a, a painkiller, here is a prescription to walk in to CrossFit Invictus down in San Diego and get three months of treatment because it's treatment. So this is what is just so exciting for me to see this movement because I think that we can finally do that. Yeah, I can add on to it. First of all, I think that you guys should be the model of patient doctor um, <laughs> because that's the, that's the common theme that I see in our community is my doctor doesn't understand. My doctor doesn't, like, I want to get my pull-ups back, or I want to get my snatch back, or I want to build my strength back. And a lot of oncologists, um, I think it's more of a fear. It's fear-based to say, yeah, you should go do CrossFit. So I've heard things like, CrossFit's dangerous. You'll never do push-ups again. Um, don't run, because you might fall and, and hurt your boobs. I literally have heard these, these reasons why exercise is bad after cancer. Um, the great thing is exercise is free. And it's available to everyone as long as you can walk outside. Um, and so the, the, the most important thing, I think, that when it comes to educating trainers, and I'm very, we're being very intentional at Barbells for Boobs because we have to equip them with the knowledge um, to properly engage with anybody going through a traumatic experience like cancer. And so what we started, we built out scholarships and we built a education library. Of, we have a five-hour education library um, taught by an exercise oncologist, PhD, Dr. Um, Kieran Fairman, um, to educate coaches across the country, um, the world, about exercise oncology, um, even trigger words that might impact a woman if she hears that and it might make them cry. And you have to be there emotionally to support them through that that moment that they might be facing of a memory. Um, and so what I, I really want to make sure is that we build a bridge to the medical professionals and fitness professionals and fitness professionals get the respect that they deserve when it comes to taking care of a person on their physical activity journey. And that CrossFit has built some of the best fitness providers in the world. And so building that bridge to say, cool, I'm going to go see my oncologist every six months, maybe every three months, maybe once a year, depending on where I'm at, my diagnosis. I see my coach three times a week. Who's more important in my life? Who needs to be better equipped to be there for me? Um, and so when we started providing scholarships, I was like, they're not educated enough. And then the pandemic hit. So Barbells for Boobs brought on full-time. We have a mental performance coach and we have a physical performance coach. We work with 380 women, 81 women in nine countries. 40% of them connect with our coaches once a week. The engagement is incredible. And what we're learning is their mental health. That's where we need to start is the mental health and building that confidence that they can do a pull-up, that they can do a push-up. We have an, a Zoom class, a live Zoom class, four days a week where they connect. We have women from Canada, Portuguese, US, Connecticut, um, and they're all connected and building this confidence that 
they can be better after breast cancer. And that, that constant thing, I'm like, well, this is what I could squat before. All right, awesome. Well, let's do more. Like, let's remove that number and let's, let's build you up for more. And so I think that the most important part is going to be getting the information from our two coaches so then they can start teaching more coaches how to be there for them after treatment and making sure that they build that confidence back up. And so we're really on that mission to build an army of professional fitness, <laughs> uh, the professional fitness army and professional oncologists that say, go to that professional fitness because I don't know. I'm, you know, like in a, in a doctor saying, I don't know. Can you, you guys can say that, right? I mean, a lot of doctors can't. I don't I know. It, it doesn't day. exist. <laughs> it doesn't exist. They'll just be like, don't, it's dangerous, right? No, it's not. This is who you should go talk to. Um, and this is where you need to go for that information. So that's what we're working on. But it won't happen overnight, right? So this is, this is progress. Like even exercise oncology, where that, this is now that new phase of exercise oncology is implementation um, in that everyday gym that coaches are comfortable and confident and working with cancer patients. So, so I think just to build on that, you know, one of the biggest fears, I'm also a trainer. I'm a level one coach. I've coached CrossFit for 11 years. Um, and a lot of cancer patients over those years, um, and owners of the gyms that I've worked at said, uh, what are you doing? Right. Um, there is this inherent fear because there are a lot of unknowns with cancer patients, right? And there are a lot of specifics with particular cancer patients, right? There have been these feared populations, patients with brain metastases who might have issues with balance. Right? People with bone metastases, where there was a lot of concern for many years that someone with a bone metastasis, if they put a heavy barbell on their back, might break something. And the answer is, if it's untreated, that, that may actually be true. And some of those people should be starting with PVC pipe. Right? But as we progress, right, it is safe and absolutely beneficial to these people to then add an empty barbell, then start adding weight to their barbell. And so part of what we are trying to do is to get some of that data to tell oncologists that it's safe and to tell primary care doctors that it's safe, but also to tell trainers that it's safe. Um, and so one of the things that I've been working on for the last couple of years is we are building an exercise program for cancer patients and survivors at Memorial Sloan Kettering. I'm running that program and building this based on CrossFit principles, functional fitness principles, right? Traditionally, when we've told cancer patients to exercise, even, you know, with the new exercise oncology recommendations, it's been 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity exercise, which is defined as moderately brisk walking, or 75 minutes a week of more vigorous intensity exercise, which is defined typically as something like moderate bicycle, right? In nowhere in there did we hear anything about resistance training, strength training, high intensity training. And so it is key that we start spreading that message too, right? That like, Can we test Fran? You know, like... <laughs> you can test Fran. <laughs> What's your Fran time? <laughs> I don't know, post-pandemic... <laughs> So just to jump in on that, so what we did, and this is what's amazing about this kind of collection and, you know, Julie and CrossFit letting us bring this together. So 
when we did the Battle Cancer program, we did that. We took a 12-week structure. And Colin Robertson, who we spoke to, he's worked with 8,000 people over the past 11 years, uh, some Olympians that he's actually taken from cancer diagnosis treatment back to the Olympics. Um, and I got told, who are you to make a program? And I said, okay, okay, yeah, I don't have, you know, the incredible qualifications as yourself. But it wasn't people like yourself who asked that question. It was people who didn't know. So we started, we said, you have to start somewhere. Let's start with a base program. And our programs in the groups that we have has a huge range of people. Now, there will be bits that we'll need to change in that program. We're already getting the feedback. And what we wanted to creatively do was give people a structure where, first of all, you know, Z is making the up level in terms of emotional and physical output from a coach. That's phenomenal. I, I can't do that. But what we want to do is give you a structure. So if you can't afford to go off and become a cancer specialist, which is a big barrier eventually for people who want to do that, but they can't afford to do it. Can we give you something that you feel confident that when you deliver the physical structure, that you know it's safe, you know it's progressive, and you also know it's being reviewed. And I think that's what's amazing, and we're going to be able to connect through that through CrossFit. So as the data we get from each one of our 12, I can give that to you. You can look at it, do what you want with it, because I know you're going to do great things with it, and it's going to come back. So in the UK, what I'm trying to do, and hopefully by December this will be approved, is speak to a sub-parliamentary group to say, let's start having a structured, agreed program that's looked at and make that, so it's something in the UK called SIMSPA, which is the Chartered Institute of uh, Medicine and Sport. So if they agree that this program's good, it means that commercial gym chains will feel safe to deliver that program. And if we keep reviewing it and working with phenomenal people like yourself, and then people like yourself who are updating those emotional skills, physical skills, trigger points, which, you know, saying the one thing means someone never comes back on their journey, then that is how we break and get those army of people and convince the people at the top. But the only reason I raise it is because everyone kept saying, well, who are you to start this? And you're going to make people worse. Well, I ain't going to make anybody worse and somebody has to start it. And I think because I'm not an MD, because I don't have that background, I keep getting told it was easier for me to do. But what's great is I can lean on phenomenal people like yourselves to back that message up. And it's why it's amazing to just listen to what you say. Also, just from like my perspective of going through it as well, I'd like to pick up on your points on the whole fear of exercise. So I'm very open on my social media and I've documented my whole journey from diagnosis all the way through my treatment and I'm pretty blunt and honest with it, but to try and take the taboo away from cancer as best that I possibly can. But I'm also very, I showcase what I do in terms of my training and the number one thing that I get daily from people messaging me is I really want to exercise but I'm scared and that fear is because it's getting instilled from their medical profession because their oncologist has said to them you need to be careful you need to rest you need to do this and because of that it's then ingraining a fear in their mind that they can't exercise and they can't then lift a barbell and they can't do resistance training because it's coming from the people above so again like as they were saying that by bridging that gap between coaches and medical profession and showing the evidence and showing how it is safe to exercise and it's actually going to do them benefit and it's not going to make them worse we can then take that fear away from coaches take that fear away from oncologists kind of hopefully unite that and then the actual patients themselves will not have that fear because that's what's coming from them and then they will then be able to exercise without that kind of anxiety every time they, you know, try and pick up something. Because at the end of the day, you know, if you're bringing in your shopping, like 
that can be, I work in kilos, but that can be like, you know, five, 10 pounds. Um, but, you know, and you're going to need to do that. But if you've got someone saying to you, like I personally did get told at the beginning of my treatment, you can't lift a kettle. I was like, well, how am I going to make a cup of tea then? You know, like, I'm English. I need a cup of tea. And, but you know, that's the whole point. If we take that fear away and you actually have people saying, well, yeah, you can lift a 10 pound dumbbell. You can lift heavier. You know, I was used to lifting significantly more than that. Why should I then go to not being able to lift a kettle that only, you know, is about four pound. Um, so yeah, the, the number one thing is going to be bridging that gap so that we can then take that fear away from the people above. And then that will then filter down to people like myself. That's amazing. That's amazing. We have just a couple minutes left. Can we do an audience question? Yes? Okay. All right. Anyone from the audience that would like to ask a question to these lovely panelists? Yes. One of my, one of my favorite podcasts was from 2000, your podcast was from 2018 with Dr. Thomas Seafried. Yes. He presented a number of uh, alternative measures, which I would consider a significantly untapped amount of resources. So what I hear from, the, well, also the intent of the question is not anti-drug, anti-treatment, but I, what I hear from this panel is that exercise is just another major tool in that toolbox. My question is about access. So just like functional medicine continues to grow, grow, we see more entities, more doctors. Is there a, are there more doctors slash entities who are pushing alternative cancer treatment measures and or is there a website or an entity that people can go to to find these things so i can probably take go on for some it. of that at least and then um, yeah. so the answer to that is absolutely and this is a growing movement so first of all we finally have a name for our field as i said it's exercise oncology we didn't have a name so there was no way for all of us to come together and actually recognize our colleagues for a very long time um we now have conferences around exercise oncology. Um, there are some key organizations that are starting to really move in this direction. So um, there is the Society for Integrative Oncology. Um, they are sort of key in not only exercise, but dietary interventions, supplements, other things. Um, again, sort of to, to your point, not about drugs versus diet or drugs versus exercise, right? But how do we actually integrate all of these things together into the most successful treatment? And I think that's where some of the hesitancy on the medical end of things came because for a long time there was this push to say, oh, well, we should just treat this with diet or we should just treat this with exercise. And as an oncologist, I can tell you that my patient will die if they do that, right? But I know that I can make them better with treatment plus exercise or treatment plus dietary recommendations. So Society for Integrative Oncology is the biggest place right now. And then the American College of Sports Medicine has a program that is called Exercise is Medicine and their main focus is exercising cancer. So they're actually the ones that are creating guidelines for cancer patients right now. Wonderful. I think we are just about, uh, we, are, we are just about, okay. All right. One more question. Thank you very much. That was a great panel. Um, I'm a physician um, and I don't take care of patients at this point that typically have malignancy, although I have at a previous time in my life. I find that a lot of what you said on the panel is sort of shameful from a medicine perspective. And when I, I'm not surprised, 
but it's still disappointing to hear that there isn't appropriate receptivity for sort of the elements of health beyond curing disease, right? Fitness, food, stress, sleep, relationships. Is there a way, and I maybe should ask him, but is there a way for CrossFit to engage in a formal way with the medical infrastructure to try to affect medical education, to try to change this as all of these other things are going on, which I think are critical, to try to improve this from the, from the ground up? I think that is a great point. I know that um, we, are, we are actually about out of time because they need to switch over um, for the next panel. But I will say, if you can, this is a plug for anyone here to go fill out the survey over at the CrossFit Health booth, um, because I think that's something that we're working towards. And we want to hear your thoughts and ideas about this to think about ways that we can engage more formally and make more progress. Yeah. Thanks. So I think that's going to be it. So huge round of applause for all of our panelists. This was amazing. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people. 